It was an unseasonably warm evening for early spring, and Le Boeuf sur la Toit, in the 8th arrondissement of Paris, was very busy. Jazz music punctuated the tight negative spaces between spirited discussions and clinking glassware. Jean Cocteau held court at one table, while at another, Maurice Chevalier and Pablo Picasso discussed Francis Picabia's mixed-media piece, The Cacodylic Eye, that was inspired by one of the artist's eye infections. The work in question hung above the bar overlooking the nightly spectacle. Gabrielle Buffet Picabia and her friend Elsa Scaparelli sat at said bar. Gabby attempted to convince her friend to attend a party with her the following evening. Please... Gabby took a sip of champagne, her gaze focused expectantly on Elsa. Elsa heaved a sigh and lit a cigarette as she dramatically cast her eyes towards the ceiling, before casting a wink in Gabby's direction. <sighs> if I must, I suppose I could go. Gabby smiled smugly. She knew Elsa was not going to miss a good time. Everyone was going to be there. Oh, it'll just be a few of us, Marais, Jean, of course, Paul, Francis, myself, Andre. Her nose wrinkled in disgust, though the corners of her mouth pulled ever so slightly. And most likely that wretched thorn in his side, Salvador Dali. Hello and welcome to History Unhemmed, a podcast that debunks, decentralizes, and digs in to sartorial scandals, controversial couture, and other infamous moments in fashion history. I'm your host, Felicia. For the bibliography of today's episode and other suggested readings, check out the show notes wherever you get your podcasts. Some of our content may be inappropriate for more sensitive ears, so listener discretion is advised. These days... Artists and fashion designers collaborate all the time. There was the Chanel mobile art container of 2003, designed by Zaha Hadid that looked like a UFO had landed in New York City's Central Park. Louis Vuitton has collaborated with Yoyoi Kusama more recently, and then Takashi Murakami in 2003, Jeff Koons in 2017, and we can't forget Alexander McQueen's partnership with Damien Hirst in 2013 and the skull print scarves that everyone was wearing after that. It was not really, though, until the 20th century that fashion and art in Europe really interacted, beyond art as a vehicle for conveying what was fashionable. And even then, that was rarely the purpose. Art was lofty, academic, philosophical, male-dominated, while most of fashion, barring the highest echelons, was often regarded as a lesser commercial craft that often got dismissed as frivolous and, worse yet, feminine. Yet, the majority of those who have been in positions of power and respect in said industry have been men. Between World War I and World War II, though, more than a few of the major fashion houses in Paris were actually led by women. These included Jean Lanvin, Madeleine Vianney, Madame Grey, Gabrielle Coco Chanel, and of course, Elsa Scaparelli. Elsa Scaparelli was born in Rome into an upper-middle-class academic family in 1890. Her parents had been expecting a boy and were caught off guard by the birth of their daughter, so much so that they didn't even have a name picked out for her. Elsa Scaparelli, thus, ended up named after her German nanny. Never a fan of her name, surprise, she often went by Scap among friends. Scaparelli was never a conventional sort, 
and as a child she once attempted to plant seeds in her ears and nose with the hopes that flowers would grow and she would become beautiful. Further frustrating the adolescent Scaparelli's aspirations of personal beauty were several moles on her left cheek. It was her uncle Giovanni, an astronomer credited with finding rivers on Mars, who lovingly pointed out that the beauty marks form the shape of the constellation Ursa Major, the Big Bear, also known as the Big Dipper, a symbol that Scaparelli came to adopt for luck. Growing up, she often chafed against her parents' strict rules, and in her teens, she published some romantic poems that were so spicy that her horrified parents sent her to a convent. She later had to leave the convent after going on a hunger strike. And in 1913, she moved to London to help her sister take care of orphans. And if we're speaking frankly, to get out of her parents' house. While in London, she attended a lecture and met a young theosophist and nobleman named Count William de Wendt de Curler. De Curler was 30 and had that sophisticated and worldly charm that sent the 23-year-old Scaparelli head over heels. The couple married quickly, and by that I mean they were married within a day of meeting one another. However, it soon became apparent that Prince Charming was not who or what he claimed to be. He was neither an aristocrat nor a medium. After being forced to leave England when de Curler was convicted of fraud and illegal fortune-telling, the couple moved to New York. On the ship to New York, Scaparelli would meet the art critic Gabrielle Gabby Buffet Picabia, who had become a very close friend. Gabby was married to the Dada artist Francis Picabia, and was more than happy to introduce the flamboyant and daring Scaparelli into her circle of artistic friends that included people like Man Ray, Edward Steichen, and Alfred Stieglitz. In New York, de Curler was home less and less often, and by 1920, when Scaparelli was pregnant with the couple's daughter Gogo, he had completely abandoned her, reportedly for the dancer Isadora Duncan. He left Scaparelli and Gogo virtually penniless. In 1922, Scaparelli and Gogo left New York for Paris. The Picabias had already left months earlier and had been encouraging Scaparelli to come with. Concerned that de Curler would try to take Gogo from her, Scaparelli changed her daughter's last name to Scaparelli before leaving New York with her. Scaparelli's divorce from de Curler wouldn't be finalized until 1924. While in Paris, Scaparelli began selling her sketches to several fashion houses. One of the house mistresses told her she would have had better luck selling potatoes. But, undaunted, Scaparelli kept doing her thing, and eventually, after meeting the king of fashion himself, Paul Poiret, began to design, and in 1925, she opened her own business. She was forced to shut down the following year. And then, she reopened. For real this time. In 1927, Elsa Scaparelli launched her first collection, which already showed her predilection for the tastes of painting and sculpture over trends espoused by other fashion houses and designers. The collection comprised of sweaters with bow collars, but rather than having collars attached to the sweaters or made out of another material, the stylized-looking bows were knit into the pattern of each sweater, their appearance borrowing heavily from the angular forms of cubism. The collection became an overnight sensation after Scaparelli was spied wearing one of the sweaters out at a fashionable lunch. And from there, her career exploded. In a profile of her written for The New Yorker in 1932, Janet Flanner summed up her career in a single word headline. That headline was Comet. Flanner also declared that a, quote, frock from Scaparelli ranks like a modern canvas, end quote. And in 1934, 
Caramel Snow of Harper's Bazaar describes Scaparelli as, quote, the most daring and original talent in the French dressmaking world, with a volcanic energy and a fantastically fecund sense of modern invention, end quote. Meanwhile, that same year, the 30-year-old Spanish artist Salvador Dali was on trial by his fellow surrealists, led by André Breton. Breton had published two surrealist manifestos, one in 1924 and another in 1929. Dali only narrowly missed expulsion in 1934. His crime? Other than being obnoxious and arrogant and annoying a lot of his cohorts, many believed him to be a supporter of Hitler and fascism, but we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Salvador Dali was born in 1904 in Figueres in the Catalan region of Spain. Nine months before his birth, his older brother, who had also been named Salvador, died suddenly. When he was five years old, Dali's parents told him that he was the reincarnation of his dead older brother. This belief would stick with Dali all his life. Not really any surprise there. In 1922, Dali entered the Academy of Art in Madrid, and by 1923, had been suspended for starting a riot. He would be expelled in 1926 after declaring that none of the school's faculty were competent enough to evaluate his work. He returned home to Figueres, where he continued to work. His bizarre and graphic images of death, mutilation, and violence deeply disturbed the local art circles. Things got so bad that even galleries in Madrid and Barcelona didn't want to show his work. Of course, things would soon change. Dali and his friend Luis Buñuel produced a short, silent film in 1929, called The Andalusian Dog, or Un Chien Andalou, that caught the attention of avant-garde artists, especially the Surrealists, making them both overnight rock stars in Paris. Now, I won't get into the specifics of the film, but it's a free-associated mix of sex, violence, rotting corpses, a donkey, and an eyeball sliced with a razor blade. In 1929, Dali met Gala, the wife of the Surrealist poet Paul Eluard. They quickly began having an affair, which Paul was actually perfectly fine with since he was pursuing someone else as well. Paul and Gala had even been involved in a sort of thruple with the artist Max Ernst just a few years before. It was not long before Gala left her husband and child to go live with the 24-year-old Dali, who was about 10 years her junior. She became muse, manager, and eventually his wife in a civil ceremony held in 1934. That same year, Dali's work was included in the International Surrealist Exhibition in London, along with that of most of the major players, including his judge, André Breton. Though it's hard to pinpoint the exact first meeting between Elsa Scaparelli and Salvador Dali, it was clear that they met in the early 1930s through Surrealist art circles, a fixture at parties and at bars like La Boeuf sur la Toit. The shrewd and lively Scaparelli made a point to see and be seen around members of Paris's creative elite. In fact, when she opened her atelier at 21 Rue Vendôme in 1935, it became, for a few years anyway, what Gertrude Stein's salons had been to the likes of Hemingway and Picasso about a decade earlier. While Scaparelli collaborated with surrealists like Jean Cocteau and Marais Oppenheim, it would be her works created in conjunction with Salvador Dali that would perhaps have the most impact. The first documented item that Scaparelli and Dali created together was a small black lacquer compact made to look like the face of a rotary telephone. For anyone listening who was born after the year 2000, that's one of those phones that you see in the movies where they have to spin the dial to make the call. 
Anyway, no sooner was it released in 1935, it was flying off the shelves and being copied in department stores across the Atlantic. Later that year, Dali handed Scaparelli a drawing that he had done. He captioned it, quote, Suit with semi-rigid and soft drawers, material imitation, strip chain, drawer pulls in natural oak, end quote. This drawing would be the basis for a series of suits and coats in Scaparelli's winter 1936-37 haute couture collection. The suits were made of navy blue velvet and embellished with drawer-shaped pockets with plastic knobs as pulls. The photographer, Cecil Beaton, shot them for a spread in the September 1936 issue of Vogue, in which he acknowledged the surrealist origins of the suits. The model in the spread poses against a barren stony landscape, holding a copy of the June 1936 issue of Minotaur, which was a surrealist magazine published in Paris through the 1930s. On the cover of Minotaur is an illustration, by Dali of course, of a woman with the head of a bull, which kind of checks out for a magazine called Minotaur. Her chest is an open drawer. Scaparelli's 1937 lobster dress came next, inspired by Dali's 1936 sculpture, Lobster Telephone. Lobster Telephone pretty much describes the piece exactly. It is a rotary phone conjoined with a lobster where the phone itself should sit. Dali associated both the lobster and the telephone with sex, which really isn't that shocking since Dali was an admirer of Freud and actually read the latter's book, The Interpretation of Dreams, when he was very young. He would go on to describe Freud's book as one of the capital discoveries of his life. It's not unintentional that the mouthpiece of the telephone is cradled around where the lobster's sex organs typically are, where the tail and thorax come together. The lobster dress is a white silk organza A-line gown with a large red lobster on the skirt, surrounded by scattered sprigs of green parsley. The lobster's tail is positioned, probably on purpose, near the wearer's crotch. The lobster and parsley sprigs were applied by the master silk designer Sash, and the dress features a slight empire waist set off with a coral inset under the bust. According to Scaparelli's memoirs, Dolly was disappointed because she wouldn't let him put one last touch on the dress. That touch was mayonnaise. Not a depiction of mayonnaise in paint or embroidery, but actual goopy, slimy, whitish mayonnaise. Do with that what you will. The shocking little number could only be pulled off by a woman who was not shy or afraid to flout public opinion. Which is why Wallace Simpson was the perfect person to model it. That she was a huge fan of Scaparelli's work? Mm, that didn't hurt either. Simpson was poised to become the Duchess of Windsor after Edward VIII abdicated the British throne to marry her in one of the biggest scandals of the 20th century. We'll talk about the American divorcee's role in fashion history more in another episode, so definitely stay tuned for that. Cecil Beaton, again photographed the dress on Simpson shortly before her marriage to Edward in May of 1937 for an eight-page spread in Vogue. Two of the photographs show Simpson in the lobster dress in the gardens of the Chateau de Condé. After the shoot, Simpson bought the dress from Scaparelli. 1937 also saw the shoe hat. The black felt hat in the shape of an upside-down high-heeled pump was based on a photograph taken in 1933 by Gala in which Dolly wore an upside-down shoe on his head. 
photos of the collaborative shoe hat were published in the October 1937 issue of L'Officier de la Mode et de la Couture. One of Scaparelli's shoe hats, owned by Gala herself, is now in the Victorian Albert Museum in London. The heel of Gala's shoe hat is a bright magenta, a color called shocking pink. If that sounds familiar, it was 1937 that Scaparelli made shocking pink her signature color. It has been associated with her ever since. The Paris Surrealism Exhibition opened on the 17th of January in 1938 at the Galerie de Beaux-Arts, placing the movement and its imagery at the forefront of society's consciousness. Surrealism was, in a word, hot. It was a vehicle of horror and also a fantastical escape. Surrealism was without reason, yet grounded in life. Dali and Scaparelli's work rejected and reflected the excitement and mounting terrors of their interwar world. Cue Scaparelli's summer 1938 circus collection a few weeks later. The circus collection featured buttons in the shapes of clowns and acrobats made by Jean Clement and garments covered with patterns of prancing horses and elephants. This collection also contained two very important pieces that underscore the sort of dark and twisted circus of dreams over the jolly three-ring spectacle that we typically associate with the word circus. These were the skeleton dress and the tears dress. The skeleton dress is a long-sleeved, floor-length black gown with raised, superimposed bones at the collar, hips, and along the vertebrae and ribs, created using a quilted trapunto technique. Made of matte silk, the dress was designed to cling tightly to the body of the wearer, creating a warped shape and severity that contrasted with the merry colors and whimsical designs presented in much of the collection. But then, a circus must have an element of thrill, right? Take, for instance, the lion tamer putting their head in the animal's mouth. In a moment, the lion could bite down and crush their skull and snap their neck. It would be a pretty gruesome game over. You could also look to the acrobat swinging gracefully on the trapeze. The audience wonders with bated breath during those tense few seconds when the performer is flying, hands free, through the air. Will they grab the bar or slip and fall? The tear dress is another piece in the collection that evokes that sense of the sublime. It's beautiful, yet it draws attention to the ravages and horrors of war. The tear dress is white with an attached veil. The print on it was designed by Salvador Dali. In his painting entitled, Three Young Surrealist Women Holding in Their Arms the Skins of an Orchestra, showing three figures holding what appear to be deflated musical instruments, one woman is seen in a white dress with a repeating pattern that's supposed to represent torn flesh. The ripped fabric and torn skin were meant to be indistinguishable. This idea is clearly transcribed onto the tears dress. The circus collection was one of Scaparelli's most famous of all time, and reproductions of its components spread quickly to department stores all over the world. Europe approached World War II, political concerns intensified. While the Surrealists had aligned themselves with leftist politics, Dali argued that Surrealism could and should be apolitical. Things came to a head, though, when Dali refused to explicitly denounce fascism and Hitler. And it should probably be mentioned that Dali had developed what can be described as a sort of sexual obsession with Hitler. So much so that he was considered a Nazi sympathizer by the FBI at one point. He once confessed... Quote, I often dreamed of Hitler as a woman, 
His flesh, which I had imagined whiter than white, ravished me. There was no reason for me to stop telling one and all that to me Hitler embodied the perfect image of the great masochist, who would unleash a world war solely for the purpose of losing, and burying himself beneath the rubble of an empire. The gratuitous action par excellence that should indeed have warranted the admiration of the surrealists. End quote. Hitler was also the subject of several of his paintings. Dali also praised Spain's fascist leader, Generalissimo Francisco Franco, for establishing what he described as clarity, truth, and order in Spain, and was even granted two audiences with the dictator. He convinced Franco to build a Dali museum and painted a portrait of Franco's daughter. Yet, just before the Spanish Civil War started, Dali painted Soft Construction with Boiled Beans, also known as Premonition of Civil War, in which a grotesque, barely recognizable form of a man tears himself into pieces. The work is a powerful anti-war statement. Regardless of what he actually believed, Dali was a shit-stirrer. He was the sort of person who would say or do anything to shock and offend others, especially if he could stand to benefit. He was known to have feigned madness to get attention, and nearly killed himself once while giving a presentation in a scuba suit with no oxygen. Whether Dali called himself a fascist or not, he was friendly with at least one dictator, and any denials he made were certainly overshadowed by his fixation on another. The Surrealists expelled him for good in 1939. The writer George Orwell once described him, quite politely actually, as a disgusting human being. Regardless, after he was kicked out by the Surrealists, Dali and Gala left Paris in 1940. They moved to New York and remained in the United States through the war years, where they enjoyed great popularity and commercial success. In fact, there's a Dali museum in St. Petersburg, Florida today. As for Schiaparelli, she remained a vocal opponent of Hitler before and after she left occupied France for New York in 1940. However, she traveled back and forth to Paris for a few months in 1941, which prompted rumors that she was in cahoots with the Nazis. Her important connections ensured that she had luxuries and privileges that most did not. For instance, due to shortages of gas and limits imposed by the Germans on how many cars were allowed on the roads, there were less than 7,000 permits available for private cars in Paris. Yet, she had no trouble gaining access to at least three of them just for herself. Her explanation was that she had special diplomatic immunities. But were those from the American consul in Paris or the Germans? She was placed under FBI surveillance for almost two years, though she denied all the rumors vehemently. In 1942, she helped Marcel Duchamp organize the first papers of Surrealism, an exhibition which raised money for French relief charities. She settled in Princeton, New Jersey, where she lectured on fashion and volunteered as a nurse's aide. But she refused to design clothes in exile, out of solidarity with the couturiers and artisans of occupied Paris. She began reducing her atelier before finally filing for bankruptcy and closing in 1954. She spent most of the rest of her life at her home in Tunisia, before dying in Paris in 1973 at the age of 83. Dali's collaborations with Salvador Dali rocked both fashion and art circles and united them in a way that was groundbreaking. Schiaparelli introduced Dali to Parisian and New York high society. I mean, she dressed the likes of Mae West, Joan Crawford, Marlena Dietrich, and the heiress Daisy Fellows. These introductions would help him find many wealthy patrons. Dali helped give Schiaparelli a certain gravitas. 
recognition within high art circles that other designers envied. And today, the tear dress and lobster dress are finally beginning to be considered within the broader context of surrealist art. Scaparelli was able to garner fanatical support by a number of artists and intellectuals. Jean Cocteau attended all of her fashion shows, and the surrealist art dealer Julian Levy regarded her as the only fashion designer who really understood surrealism. Along with her admirers, Scaparelli's unconventional approach brought her more than a couple of critics, including the magazine publisher William Randolph Hearst. Another was, of course, her arch-enemy Coco Chanel, who once, on a nice day, dismissed her as, quote, that Italian artist who makes clothes, end quote. In 1947, to celebrate the end of the war, Scaparelli released a perfume called Roi Soleil, an homage to Louis XIV, the Sun King. It would be her last piece with Dali before she closed her doors in 1954. Only 2,000 bottles were produced, and they were made by Baccarat. Designed by Salvador Dali, the bottle was shaped like a rock set amidst waves. The yellow glass sun-shaped stopper gave off an ethereal glow and was painted with dark silhouettes of flying seabirds. The birds formed a face, with the most elegant mustache, I must add. The Duchess of Windsor, Wallace Simpson, was a particular fan of the perfume, especially the bottle. She liked it so much, in fact, that she replaced the photo of her husband that she kept on her vanity table with the bottle and went so far as to write to Scaparelli about this. Madame Scaparelli, it is the most beautiful bottle ever made, and the Wasse Soleil is a very lasting and sweet gentleman. It has displaced the Duke's photograph on the coiffeuse. Both Salvador Dali and Elsa Scaparelli were tremendous personalities, who made a great deal of noise wherever they went. Together, they were a sonic boom. And yet, it seems, the larger-than-life persona, at least for Scaparelli, was exactly that, larger than life, even to the woman who filled her shoes, upside down or otherwise. In the foreword of her 1954 autobiography, A Shocking Life, Elsa Scaparelli wrote, I merely know Scap by hearsay. I've only seen her in a mirror. She is, for me, some kind of fifth dimension. Thank you for listening to History Unhemmed. History Unhemmed is on Patreon at patreon.com backslash history unhemmed. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a little review love. We're on Instagram at history underscore unhemmed. History Unhemmed is hosted, written, and researched by me and produced by Gary Avisoff. <laughs>